I blew it. Have you had to say those words at all this week? If not this week, you've probably had to say them at some point in your life. And if you've never said those words in your life, you're probably in denial, right? Because failure is inevitable, whether it's something that's not ultimately serious and that's your response when you get home and your wife says, uh, did, you, did you remember to stop at the store and get milk on the way home? Uh, I blew it. I, I forgot. Or, or maybe that's what you've had to confess in a much more serious moment where you have done something that you know you shouldn't have done and it has caused you pain or pain to those around you. Failure is something we all are going to have to deal with in our lives. And sometimes that may be an accident. And that's not really what we're talking about today. The the most serious failures you will make in your life is when you fail to believe what God says is true and fail to do what he says. And when you failed like that, when you know you have failed like that, what do you do after that? How do you pick up the pieces of a spiritual failure or sin in your life? And what we're going to see today is a good example of that in the scriptures because we will see Abram, after his failure in Egypt, what does he do next? And as we see that, we're going to see that the road from failure to victory is going to go through a renewed faith in the promises of God. Your faith in the promises of God, that's going to be the key to the response. And in the particular chapter we're looking at today, we'll see a specific application that that makes in Abram's life, that renewed faith in the promises of God allows him to be selfless and instead of short-sighted. So let's take your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis 13. Genesis 13. And as you turn there, just two of the themes that we are going to see again and again as we go through Genesis and look at the life of Abraham, or still at this point called Abram, uh, there's kind of a, from a God's perspective, we, we see the big picture is God keeps his promises. God is a faithful God. That's going to be proven again and again in the story of Abram. Even last week when he goes to Egypt, when he fails, we see God is the one who steps in and saves the day and protects him and protects his wife. From a human perspective, the theme we will see is the faith of Abraham, a faith that we see here in Genesis, a faith for which he is commended later on in the Bible. So even just picking us up to where we are, we started chapter 12 with God's call to Abraham. God makes his promises to Abram, and Abram responds in faith. He believes God, and he goes where God is calling him to go. He obeys what God says. But then that promise is is threatened by this famine later in Genesis 12. And there, I think we see Abram's faith falter, where he goes down to Egypt and he concocts kind of this half-truth deception about his wife. And we saw, I think, some of the consequences of that last week. And it ends on this dismal note of Pharaoh, a pagan king, sending Abram away. So what is going to come next? And what we're going to see is there's another test, there's another trial, but this time what we see Abram demonstrate a response of renewed faith. Follow along as I read our text for this morning, Genesis 13. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. 
And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So even just by reading that chapter, you see it ends on a much more positive note than the last chapter. The last chapter, uh, Moses is getting cast out of Egypt. This chapter, he's ending the chapter building an altar to and worshiping the Lord. So it feels like a contrast, but I think this is an intentional contrast by God in the Bible. And you see that in the language. Now we have good English translations of the Bible, which was originally written basically the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. But sometimes understanding some of those original words in the original language help us. And here it helps us even see this contrast. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. It says, now Abram was very rich in livestock. That Hebrew word could also be translated heavy. Right, that's the idea. He's he's rich. He's I mean, we use a phrase sometimes. They with some of it's rich. They're loaded, right? He's heavy with uh, all of this wealth that he has. Now go back to chapter twelve. Go back to chapter twelve and verse ten. It says, "Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was, it's that same word. It's heavy. It's a heavy." Famine. So we see something heavy there in chapter 12, followed by a not great response from Abram. Here we see something heavy, and we're going to see a different response. In fact, what we start to see in this chapter calls us back to the first half of chapter 12, which was much more positive, where we see Abram responding in faith. It talks about him going uh, and back to this place, Bethel and Ai, between there, where he had pitched his tent, where he had made an altar, and he's calling upon the name of the Lord again. That calls us back to chapter 12 and verse 8, where it says that from there he moved through the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent where, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the right. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So now we see this intentional callback to what he was doing 
in chapter 12. After his failure, Abram is intentionally seeking the Lord. He's going back to the place where he had obeyed the Lord, where he had called upon the name of the Lord, and where he had worshipped the Lord. And what I want to show you, and you'll see this again and again in the Bible, the difference, the differentiator between failure and victory or obedience is usually going to be tied to faith. And by that, I mean really trust. Do you actually believe God or not? When the answer to that question is yes, you will see victory in your life. And when the answer to that question is no, that's when you will see failure and disobedience. So point number one this morning, you need to strengthen your faith after failure. Strengthen your faith after failure because what I'm trying to tell you is a lack of faith is the reason you failed. You failed to believe God and do what he said because you failed to trust his word. You failed to trust his promise. And that is something clearly we see in Genesis, later on in the New Testament, the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews highlight the faith of Abraham, call us to follow in his footsteps. We need to learn the lessons of faith. This is why God is writing this down for us so that we can see this example of faith and that we can follow it. And when I say faith is really the differentiator, that's true in the big sense, right? Even what do we refer to Christians sometimes as? We refer to them as believers. And from a human perspective, that's the difference. It's not that Christians, well, they're better people or they they tried harder than other people. No, they have believed in God. They have put their faith in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. They believe that. They've put their trust in that. And those that don't, they haven't believed that. They haven't put their trust in that. And even the story of Abram is used in the New Testament to make the point we are saved by faith and not by works. We, as human beings, are in a hole so deep, we're not going to climb our way out of it. We need the grace of God. We need to receive the gift of salvation that he gives us by faith. And once we are saved by faith, it's not that then we're sanctified by our works. No, we continue to walk in faith as Abraham did. And when you see sin or disobedience in your life, you need to look and realize, well, the answer why I did that is because I'm not actually trusting God. I'm not actually walking in faith like I should have. And when we see that in Abram's life, where he goes down and he takes things into his own hands, he fails to trust God in Egypt, now we see him going back, going back to where he was at the beginning. We see a renewal of his faith and his trust in God, going back to this altar, calling upon the name of the Lord, an act of of worship and, and seeking God. That's what he is going back to now. And when you fail in the Christian life, you need to realize that, that failure stemmed from a lack of faith. And so I need to build my faith. Growth in the Christian life isn't just tips and tactics. It's do you believe God or not? And even the things, the practical things that you do in the Christian life are meant to reinforce and build that faith. I couldn't think about this passage and seeing Abram go back to where he was at the beginning without being reminded of a passage from the last book of the Bible. And that passage isn't talking about a faith. It's talking about Love, these are, I hope you see, faith and love, these are very core motivators in the Christian life. And in Revelation 2, Jesus is writing a letter to a church that he says has lost its first love, the church at Ephesus. And in Revelation 2, 5, he tells them what to do about this loss of the love they had at first. 
He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If we want to alliterate all that, remember, repent, and return. Do the things that you did at first. That's how you get back to the love that you had at first. And I would say that if you want to get back to the faith that maybe you had in a stronger season of your life, that's what you need to do. You need to remember. You need to repent. And you need to return. Go back and do the things that you did. And if you, as a Christian, look, well, when was my faith the strongest? And you say, what was I doing then? I'm guessing probably a few things are going to come up. I was in the Word. I was reading the Bible. I I was praying. I was talking to God. And I was a part of a church. I had Christian community that was encouraging me in Christ. You need those things. Not so you can be a good little Christian boy and check all the box and get straight A's. No, because those things feed your faith. And when it comes time to, am I going to follow God or not, what's going to make the difference is, do you believe God or not? And the more you're in the word, the more you're in prayer, the more you're surrounded by other Christians who are seeking the Lord, the more your faith will be strong. And you will believe what God has said. You need to bring yourself back to the promises of God and to the word of God to strengthen your faith. Now, we saw that faith tested last week, and Abram didn't have a great response to it when he went down to Egypt. This week, we will also see a test of this faith. Instead of a heavy famine, it's this heavy wealth, and it leads to conflict. You start to see that in verses 5 and 6. It says the land could not support both of them dwelling together. There are too many herds and not enough resources. So in some ways, it's it's similar. Last week, the Land couldn't support Abram because of a famine. Now it can't support Abram because of a conflict because there's not enough for them. And it's not just as if Abram and Lot are the only people around. Verse 7 tells us the Canaanites and the Perizzites are dwelling in the land. There's, There's not enough. It can't support them. And so there is conflict. But unlike last week where we see Abram take things into his own hand, a response that showed a lack of faith, This week, we're going to see him, instead of taking things for himself and trying to protect himself, we're going to see him be selfless. His strong faith is going to show itself in selflessness, sacrifice, generosity, and magnanimity. Point number two, show your faith through generosity in conflict. Show your faith through generosity in conflict. Starting in verse 8, we see Abram resolve things here. And this should be very surprising to us. He takes initiative and he offers Lot the first pick. He gives some of his rationale, basically, hey, we're kinsmen, we're we're brothers, relatives. We should not be quarreling like this. let's, Let's resolve this. Let's not have strife. He takes the first step. And then what does he do? He offers something very generous. He basically says, Lot, you take your first, you take the first pick. Now, that should be shocking to us for a variety of reasons. Abram deserves first pick, whether it's just the the hierarchy of families, that he was the older male in the family, or more importantly, that he was the one who had received the promises of God. He had every right to say, Lot, scram, get out of here, stop taking my stuff, Lot. He, He could have done that, but he doesn't. He instead goes and says, Lot, you take the first pick. This was deferential. This was sacrificial, and I want to show you, even the way the text is framing it is showing you, it's not just, oh, because this is a good tip to resolve conflict. No, because this is what you will do if you believe God. If you really believe God and all the promises that he has made to his people, you will act like Abram in conflict. 
One commentator said, the recipient of the promise did not need to guard his future possessions jealously. Rather, he could deny himself and relinquish the better part to Lot. His faith is renewed and he's showing it through this just kind of magnanimous attitude in the midst of conflict. And that's how it's going to work for you. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis says this, fellow believers, Abram's spiritual seed, when we truly believe the promises that are ours in Christ, when we truly understand and believe that we are seated right now in him in the heavenly places, when we understand that all things are ours in Christ, we will cease our grasping. We will stop grabbing after everything for ourselves when we remember, no, I have everything I need in Christ. It's harder to feel threatened by others when you know you're protected by the promises of God. And that'll show itself up in, in, show itself in conflict. Well, one morning this week, I was studying from home, and so I was hearing my kids, and with a lot of young kids in the house, I was hearing the kind of things you hear with a lot of young kids in the house, right? They start to get territorial. They start to get selfish over what is theirs. A couple of my sons, they love to watch size comparisons, right? Where you take the animals and you start with the smallest one and then it gets bigger and it shows you them kind of to scale next to each other. It'll do that with buildings. And one of my sons, then he loves to turn around and make his own size comparison. He'll get all the animal toys we have. I don't know how many that is. All I know is that it's too many. And he'll, he'll start making his own size comparison, finding the smallest one, putting it there, and he'll have some string of toy animals that's like 10 yards long in our front hallway from the very smallest animal toy all the way to the biggest one, and he loves it. But then the two-year-old wakes up from his nap, right? And it's all threatened, right? He comes home, and you start to hear the panic in the five-year-old's voice. And if something gets touched, you know, you'll hear the cries of, but I worked so hard, right, on this toy, or he's going to ruin everything, And we're trying to teach him, you know, you can calm down, man. You can calm down because guess what? You have a a mother and a father. And we're going to teach the two-year-old that he's not supposed to mess up your stuff. And if he does, guess what? We can help you fix it. And even if he breaks something, well, if we really need to, if it's really that important, we can replace it. You can, you know what? You can even be generous to him. Do you really need all of these animal toys? No, you don't. You have plenty of them. You're not going to die if you let him have two of them, right? You can be generous if you're trusting your, your parents, We are a little more sophisticated, maybe, than my five-year-old. Maybe. Um, But do you see how we're the same way? We start to get territorial. We start to grasp after what is mine. We start to worry, though, this person, they're going to ruin everything for me. I worked so hard for this. When instead we need to trust, you know what? I've got a heavenly father who's looking after me. And he's promised me a lot of great things in the Bible. I can look to him. He's going to take care of me. He cares for me. All my needs he can meet. I'm going to trust in him and I'm going to calm down. And you know what? I might even be generous and stave off the conflict by letting the two-year-old take a couple of the toys. We need more faith in our heavenly father so we can avoid more freakouts and, and conflict with our brothers and sisters here in this world. Turn to the book of Philippians with me. I want to show you the same principle in the New Testament. Go to Philippians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, if you are finding yourself that there's some difficult relationship or there's conflict in your own life, another great passage to look at 
this week would be Romans 12, which tells us things like, hey, you need to bless those who persecute you. And you need to not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. How in the world is that possible? Well, only if you really trust God. If your faith in God is strong and you realize through faith all that you have in Christ, that's what will enable you to do that. Only when you understand the grace of God will you then be able to be gracious towards others. Now, in Philippians 4, in this church almost 2,000 years ago in the city of Philippi, it seems that these two women that everybody knows in the church, that they are not getting along. And even Paul, who's in jail hundreds of miles away, he's heard about this conflict. And so he writes in Philippians 4, 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And the jaded part of you might say, well, what good is that going to do? They clearly can't agree in the Lord. That seems to be the whole problem. Well, what he's saying here is not, hey, you need to agree in the sense that you need to think exactly the same thoughts about everything that has happened, but no, you need to have the same mind, the same way of thinking. It's an intentional callback to a couple chapters earlier. Go back to chapter 2 in Philippians. Just flip the page over to chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, it starts by reminding them, wait, if you really have all these things because you have them in God, you have encouragement in Christ, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the idea. You, you need to think the same way. And how is that? What is that way that you need to think the same? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Euodia and Sintiki needed. Hey, you need to think the same way. When both of you are thinking that the other person is more important than you are, then we'll get somewhere. And the only way you're ever going to be able to think that way in your own life is, you, is if you realize all that you have in God and in his promises and through Jesus Christ. And the ultimate example of this, it goes on to say, is Jesus Christ, who even though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, became nothing, and gave himself so that you and I can be saved. What's more magnanimous than that? Nothing. And if you are on the receiving end of that, I have forgiveness, I have hope, I have life, and it's all completely undeserved because Jesus took the initiative with me, well, then you'll be able to show that in your relationships. I'm trusting the forgiveness I have in Christ. I'm trusting all the spiritual riches I have in Christ so I can be generous in conflict towards other people. When you are in conflict, your heavenly Father wants you to be generous. He wants you to be magnanimous. And here in Genesis 13, as we go back there, it resolves the conflict. And I wish I could promise you it, it always will solve the conflict, but it won't. There'll be times where you, you are generous, you are magnanimous. It doesn't necessarily resolve things, but I can guarantee you that it will please your heavenly father. And that's what matters the most. You will please God. And so when you find yourself in those contentious situations, your default needs to be I'm going to try to be generous. I'm going to try to be sacrificial here because I've got everything I need in Christ. I think this is true even as we contend for the faith. Last week, we mentioned a verse in 2 Timothy talking about how we need to correct our opponents with 
gentleness. So there's a standing for the truth, but there's also a gentleness and a kindness that comes along with that. And I think all of that is motivated by faith in the promises of God. That that should lead us to be something of an enigma to the world. Wait, you won't compromise and give in and go along with us, but you're also gentle and kind. How does that work? Well, it works because of faith. Because why do many people compromise and start to get away from what the Bible says and agree with what the world says? Many times it's because they're afraid. Well, if I don't do that, I'm going to lose something. But if we're confident in the promises of God, we won't compromise. Why is it that many people start to get upset or angry or nasty, even if they're saying something that is true? I think many times that also is motivated by fear because they feel threatened, right? Hey, you with these crazy worldly ideas, you're going to ruin everything for me. No, I believe God is on the throne. I know how the story ends. I know that God's word is true and, and nothing the world says can ever change that. I don't, I'm not threatened by them, but I'm gonna continue to defend the truth with a faith in God that caused me to not compromise, but also to do it with gentleness and with kindness. When, when, when we live that way, the world's gonna be like, what's up with that? And we'll be able to say, well, it's because I really believe God. I really believe what the Bible says and I really believe in Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about Abraham and how he should have been, you know, almost strutting through the streets of Egypt. No, I'm not going to end up dead in the gutter while someone else steals my wife from me because God has promised to turn me into a great nation. This week, we, we see him acting more like that. Say, I'm not worried that all of a sudden everything's going to be ruined for me if, if Lot takes the better part because I'm trusting the promises of God. And that's the same attitude that you need to have this week. I'm not worried. I'm not, I'm not threatened. I'm not scared because I'm trusting in the promises of God. And I know that he will keep those. And so then I can be generous towards others because I have a security that can never be taken away from me. Now, we talk about Lot taking the better part, it seems. But that's the thing. It seems. Did Lot actually take the better part? And here, I think, in the text in chapter 13, we are given a, a foil. Remember that from high school literature class, right? Someone that's kind of a counterexample, highlighting uh, the good things about maybe the main character. Not only is there in the text a contrast here between Abram and how he's acting now versus how he acted in Egypt, there is an intentional contrast between Abram and Lot. I mean, look at Lot with me now. In verse, I think starting there in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, right? The, the one river that does run on the border there of the promised land, but there's water there. And so maybe the, the famine is still fresh on his mind and he's thinking, well, hey, it's like the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden that had a, a river so bountiful going through it that it split off into four other major rivers or the, the Nile River in Egypt, which makes that land a little more famine proof than where we are living. Maybe he's thinking those things. The, the language that he lifted up his eyes and saw is somewhat reminiscent of uh, Eve, you know, that she saw that the fruit was good and, and that wasn't the right idea for her. Or even the fact that he journeyed east. If you're paying attention to how going east has been used in Genesis, it's generally not good. That's Adam and Eve after they're cast out of the garden. That's Cain after he's murdered his brother. That's everyone as they're settling down uh, to build the Tower of Babel. Journeying east has not been a great thing. And then the text also highlights, where is he doing this? And saying, ah, he's doing it near Sodom. 
And it's knowing, hey, you all know how that story ends. This is before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And the men of Sodom, it even highlights in verse 13, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And I've been trying to show you, every time it talks about the Canaanites, part of the thought process is these are not great, safe, normal, like healthy people. These are twisted, evil people every time it's talking about the Canaanites, but it never says anything this bad about the Canaanites. Here it's going even further to show us the wickedness of these people. Uh, Lot chooses what looks good to him, but it's very, very short-sighted. It's very much, oh, this looks good for me right now, but spoiler alert, it's not going to go well there for his family. Point number three, see through faith beyond the short term. See through faith beyond the short term. Abram is saying, I'm trusting God's promises even when there's difficulty. Lot is saying, I'm going where the grass is green and I'm not really thinking this through. I'm not really thinking about where this will lead and it'll end up being a bad thing for his family. John Calvin said, let us then learn by Lot's example that our eyes are not to be trusted. Do you see that for yourself? We shouldn't just trust, oh, well, that looks good for me. Because what looks good doesn't always end up good, especially when we're prioritizing more what looks good for me right here, right now, instead of really thinking about what God would want. As we get into these more narrative portions of, of Genesis and into some of these characters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one verse that'll help us even understand what we're trying to do here is Romans 15.4 which says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So even these passages in the Old Testament, they're written for our instruction. God has things that he wants us to learn from these passages. Now we need to be careful as we do that. On the one hand, we're tempted just to make everything in the Old Testament all about us and our problems. And every week you're going to be sent off, hey, go fight your own personal Goliath, rah, rah, let's go, right? When that, that's not always the point of what the Bible is actually saying. On the other hand, we can be tempted to turn every week into a nice history lesson without thinking about, no, God put this history lesson here so that we would learn something, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful to tell us how we should think, how we should live, what we should desire. No, we should learn. There's a difference between making it all about us, which we don't want to do, versus applying it to us, which we do want to do. But the key to that is what, is it, is what we're applying based on what the text is actually saying. And that's why I'm trying to show you all these connections between chapter 13 and chapter 12, or even this contrast and how it's highlighting things about Sodom with Lot, that I'm not just trying to pull a few nuggets from here for us to chew on all week. The text is showing us these things, and we need to see it. We need to see how Lot chooses what looks green, and it leads to destruction for his family. How often does that happen today? All the time. How many people move without any thought of, well, what's church going to look like where I'm moving to? They totally neglect their spiritual well-being for their physical well-being. How many times does your physical well-being and take precedence, your, your finances, what you feel you want for your family, how often does that take precedence for people over what matters really for their soul? Way too often. We are short-sighted like Lot was. You can have your dream job 
and your dream house and your dream family and your dream car and your soul can still rot. Because life is not all about those things. And if you're gearing everything in your life just to get those things, you're probably being short-sighted. One thing my old pastor used to say a lot was, what's going to matter 100 years from now? Do you ever stop to think about that? What's really going to matter 100 years from now? Or a lot of parents and grandparents in this room. What's going to matter most for your kids? Is it going to be ultimately be how nice of a house you lived in or how nice your vacations were? Or is it really going to be, do they actually believe God? What is the greater priority in your life? Are you focused on things that are eternal and lasting? Or are you getting caught up in the here and now? The warnings of Lot, and there'll be more warnings from Lot to come, should give us pause about that. And we should think more about eternity. One commentator on this passage said, the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And when you get into conflict with others, you need to realize it's not just about, you know, whatever the the material conflict is over. I need to look what's going on in my heart. And I think what we see here is what's going on in Abram's heart is I'm trusting God. And that leads him to resolve the conflict. What's going on in Lot's heart seems to be, I I need the nice stuff. I need the best part. And that's not going to go well for him. And think about how often this is true also in the midst of conflict. I'd say in conflict specifically, we get short-sighted. I want what I want, and I don't care if I sacrifice this relationship. I want what I want, and I don't care if I compromise my witness. Or sometimes we need to step back and say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice here because I want to preserve this relationship. Or you know what? I, I, I don't need the office I feel like I was entitled to, and I'll give that to the coworker because I, I, there's a bigger fish to fry with him. I, I want him to come to know Christ. And, and so I'm going to think long-term, even in conflict. Now, again, being generous in conflict, I, I wish I could guarantee that it would always resolve everything. It doesn't, right? But it'll preserve your witness. It'll preserve, ultimately, your faith, and it'll please your heavenly Father. Let's get to the last part of our passage here in Genesis 13. It doesn't tell us how Abram felt. It doesn't tell us if he felt frustrated, that there was another problem. It doesn't tell us if he felt relief, that Lot had gone away. But it does tell us what God does. And God comes and he speaks to Abram. And he tells him, lift up your eyes and look. Now, that's a connection. That's kind of what, what Lot did. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw and took what he thought was good. Now God's saying, Abram, you lift up your eyes and you look in every direction. And guess what? It's all yours, Abram. It's all yours. All this land that you see, I'm giving it to you. And it even highlights, I'm giving it to your offspring forever. I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a a nation filled with a lot of Abraham's offspring. They're in that same land today. Now they're not following in the footsteps of faith of Abram. I think God still has work to do on that. But God promised this land to Abram and his descendants forever. And more than that, God promises offspring to Abram. Now consider how just the incongruity there between what God is promising and what Abraham is experiencing at that point in time. He still doesn't have any of the land and all it's been so far seemingly is problems. And there's no offspring yet. He's got zero offspring, but God is making him these incredible promises. But you know what? Even though they don't match up with the reality on the ground right now, Abram believes. And the chapter ends with God calling him to walk the length and breadth of the land. 
I guess in a sense, to, to take possession of it. Go through it. This is yours. And that's what Abram does. And he moves on south to Hebron and builds another altar to the Lord there. This ends with a, a strong faith that Abram is showing, but that strong faith here is really supported by the promises of God. Point number four, support your faith with the promises of God. Support your faith with the promises of God. If you come to this church for any length of time, one thing I hope you hear as a theme in my preaching is the importance of faith and how much of the Christian life really boils down to the question, are you really going to trust God or not? Like that's the ball game. That's right at the core of what we're doing here. And one thing we also need to see, even if you go back to the very first sermon we preached at this church ever, just over five years ago, Colossians chapter one, we talked about faith. That's where we started. And one thing we said then that's still true now is your faith is only as good as its object, right? You can have faith in a lot of things, but if that thing isn't worthy of your faith, well, you're going to be disappointed. You need to put your faith in something that is sure. You need to put your faith into something that is actually trustworthy and steady and will come through. So you, Christian, you need to support your faith with the promises of God. If the promises of God are not the foundation of your faith, well, then you'll drift around. You'll go anywhere. You need to sink your roots into what the Bible says is yours in Christ. God comes here and encourages Abram and, and speaks to him. I wouldn't expect you to experience that same thing this week, but guess what? You have something that Abram didn't have. You've got this. You've got God's word. You've got God's promises. You've got the reality of what God says is true right here in your hand. You've got to get your attention onto this. This has got to be the foundation of your faith. The promises of God are rock solid, and they are better than you can comprehend. We don't understand, as Christians, too often how truly rich we are in Christ. You need to know God's word, and you need to know how to use it. I want to caution you again, many try to misapply the promises of God's word to make it sound as, hey, if you follow Christ, you will never have trouble or trials or heartache. That's not what God is promising you. The central promise really of the gospel is God is saying, I will move heaven and earth to make you like Christ. That's the center of the promises for the church. That's the center of God's promises for you. Do you believe that? And do you believe God will do that for you? And that's what even he's going to use trial and and trouble and heartache to accomplish is to make you more like Christ. Those promises are precious. They are rock solid and you need to rely on those. In this life, God does not promise to keep us from trial. He promises to refine us even through trial. And that's right now. And then there is a glorious future where there is no more trial anymore. Let's just turn to two passages that are right next to each other, the beginning of 2 Peter and then the beginning of 1 Peter. Even if I'm talking about the promises of God, like what are some of the things that I'm talking about? And I want you to see not all We often just think of promises as exclusively future. They're not. God has promises for us that are true today. And yes, there are promises for the future. Let's just take a small sampling here. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How about that? You have everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you live your life like that is true? Do you live your life like you really have everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God? That's what the Bible says is true. And if you really embrace that and you really trust that, guess what? Conflicts won't be as hard because you will be able to be more generous in a reflection of what you know you have in Christ. Let's look at something now for the future. Go to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are now being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a promise you have to look forward to, that there is an inheritance that no one and no thing can take away from you. It is reserved. It is kept in heaven for you. You start to see, man, if I really believe I have everything I need for life and godliness, and if I really believe I have this hope and an inheritance in heaven that nothing can take away from me, do you see how less worried you'll be in life? Do you see how much you'll keep from grasping and holding on to what's yours instead of trusting God? We need more faith like Abraham had. And we'll only get that if we focus on the promises of God. Now, how do we know that God will keep his promises. There's a long list of things we could go to for that, but today we'll just go to one, and it's what we do at the end of every service on the first Sunday of the month. It's communion, the Lord's table. A reminder that God keeps his promises. As we take this bread that pictures the the body of Christ, as we take this cup, which reminds us of the blood of Christ, we should be reminded that all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. The cross is proof, one of many, but maybe the the most important, that God does what he says he will do. If God has not withheld his own son, but graciously given him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we're going to take some time now. I want to Remind you, this is a time for those that have put their faith in Christ. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, let this pass. Uh, The Bible also warns us about taking this in an unworthy manner. Basically, if there is unrepentant sin in our heart, if we're doing this kind of as a mockery of God's grace, that's not right. And even in a message on conflict, if there's bitterness in your heart towards someone else, you need to confess that right now. Or maybe even you you can let this pass because you need to go make some things right with somebody else. But I want all of us to take some time now now as these elements are passed and to look at our own hearts. Where is your faith today? Is your faith strong in God and in his promises? Do you realize how much you have in Christ? 
Pray right now even, what are the conflicts in your life? How can you maybe be generous and magnanimous because of all that you have in Christ? Let's take this time. Let's meditate on what God has done for us. Let's pray to him. And then I will come back up and we will partake together. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the ultimate example, and it's all based on what he has done. It is by taking this bread and this cup that we are reminded of all that Christ has purchased for us with his blood. So let's take this now and do this in remembrance of him. Let's all stand together. Join me in a word of prayer and we'll close with one final song. God, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. God, that even though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. He came into this world, God, so that we might, through him, have forgiveness, have hope, have an inheritance in heaven that no one can take away from us. God, he was magnanimous. He was sacrificial. He was generous towards us. God, would you please strengthen our faith in Christ, in all of his promises, and all that he is for us. God, help us to obey and and to go the right way because we truly trust you. And I pray that that would, even this week, show that self specifically in how we handle conflict. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.